grab a Bible and go to Matthew 28 again this morning. This is message number four in our series on disciples making disciples. We're going to turn this Great Commission text once again and look at it from another angle and then see how it plays out in the rest of the New Testament. Today's focus will be on teaching. What are some elements in teaching others to follow Jesus? Last week we looked at a few relationships within uh, the body of Christ, within the church, where teaching occurs. We looked at the relationship of the elders to the church, uh, of faithful men to other faithful men, of, of older women to younger women, of husbands to wives, of parents to children. And then we looked at how all of those relationships are actually serving the much larger goal goal of everybody, discipling everybody. Uh, Everybody teaching one another in some way or another that that we might all become more and more like Christ, uh, like we see in Ephesians 4. What I want to do today is lay out a few elements included in this activity called teaching. So this is the teaching that would actually be taking place within all of those relationships we discussed last week. My focus isn't limited to the teaching and authority over the church that's reserved for elders. There will be some overlap in what I say today, but my primary focus is much broader than that. I have in mind the sort of teaching that we all do for one another, such as Paul mentions in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and he's talking to the whole church, teaching and admonishing one another. You see, Jesus makes something very plain for us in Matthew 28, verse 20. And that is this, making disciples includes teaching others to follow him, to obey him. Uh, Read it with me, beginning with verse 18. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Teaching them to observe, he says, all that I have commanded you. Making disciples is more than simply introducing people to Jesus. It's more than simply identifying people with Jesus through baptism. Making disciples also includes teaching these same people to obey Jesus. After all, Jesus is the king. He says he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He alone is God. He alone is victorious over sin. He alone conquered death with resurrection power. He alone has the might to crush Satan's head beneath his feet. He alone possesses a kingdom that will last forever, and he alone is coming to judge the world with utter finality. If this is who Jesus is, 
We must learn to follow Him and bring Him glory with, with every area of our lives. We don't want to repeat Israel's story, right, where they profaned God's name among the nations through their disobedience. We want to obey so that Christ's name is exalted among the nations. But how do we learn this obedience, uh, especially when our old sinful nature isn't bent toward following Jesus? We struggle with it from day to day. How do we learn obedience when we live in a world with, with devils tempting us and, and in a culture that's actually kicking against God, uh, God's reign in Christ? And, and we have all kinds of idols alluring us and the philosophies of the day, they like to coddle our fleshly appetites. How do we learn to follow Jesus amidst this world? Well, we learn to follow Jesus through teaching each other through equipping one another in the face of all of this. So what are some elements we should consider in this activity of teaching? First of all, teaching to make followers of Jesus begins with affection for Jesus and for one another. It begins with affection for Jesus and for one another. That might not be the first thing that pops into your mind when you think about teaching. But throughout the New Testament, you can't hardly escape it. When the apostles teach Christ to people, they're not just rattling off a bunch of information like bored men in the DPS office. They are heralding the message of a king. They are giving people the risen Christ whom they've come to love down to the very core of their being. Jesus is their most precious possession, and and it moves them to to teach others about him, to to declare his excellencies, as as, uh, 1 Peter says. And so you'll get comments like, the love of Christ controls us or compels us to be ministers of reconciliation. Or uh, Paul says in Acts 20, verse 24, I don't count my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see that testifying to the gospel of the grace of God, when Paul sets his own life up against this, he says it's incomparable. Teaching God's grace to others is worth way more than his own life. Or when Peter talks about the blood of Jesus that was spilled for his own sins, he describes it as precious blood. It's precious. There's this affection behind uh, seeing the value of this blood. The, The Apostle John, when he writes his first letter, he opens with, We proclaim eternal life to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And then he goes on and teaches them throughout his letter. Why does John write letters to teach these Christians? To bring joy to its completion in Christ. 
Or at other times, it's not uncommon for the apostles to just break out in, 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 in doxology or celebration as they, as they teach the church. You know, we see this in Romans 7, uh, Romans 7 when uh, Paul has spent so much time teaching on the gospel and gets to the point where he's in verse 24 of chapter 7, Wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We see it again at the end of Romans, where he, uh, Romans 11, talking after he spends some time talking about God's purposes in Israel and the Gentiles, and he just celebrates, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. The point being, teaching, in the sense we're talking about here, which is the kind of teaching that makes disciples of Jesus, it actually begins with affections for Jesus. It's a deeply personal matter because we're not just giving away abstract religious ideas when we make disciples. We're actually giving people Christ in, in all of his person. Teaching also begins with affection for one another. To teach another person who has also put their faith in Jesus is to teach a brother or sister. There's a bond that the two share or that the community shares that grows out of our union to Christ. Your union with Christ produces fondness for others in union with Christ. And that fondness leads you to care for their soul, to invest in them, to teach them, to pour yourself out for them. This makes some of us squirm in our seats a little bit because it pushes us beyond information transfer into intimacy. It pushes us beyond information transfer. I have this information. I give you this information. Teaching people to obey Jesus isn't robotic. It's relational, as we're going to see more and more uh, in just a minute. But, but let me give you a few examples of what I'm talking about in terms of affection being integral to teaching one another. For example, Paul's relationship to Timothy is often instructive for us when we think about disciples making disciples. It's a good model to follow. But, but Paul takes Timothy under his wing and he teaches him. And then he, he'd often send Timothy to other congregations to teach others also. And when he would do so, he'd often speak of Timothy with these endearing, uh, in, endearing terms. Uh, Philippians 2.22, You know Timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father... A son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Or elsewhere, he calls Timothy his, his beloved child in the faith. He's beloved. Uh, Paul even uses the same kind of language to describe his relationships with some of the churches he wrote to. Uh, in Philippians 1.8, he says, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Literally, it's, it's the bowels of Christ Jesus himself. He loves them in his guts, like down to the core of his being. Um, these are Christ's affections for the believers actually being expressed through Paul himself. Uh, or, or one of the clearest places where affections are linked with, with teaching in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, we we read this last week as well, but Paul says this, Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, 
but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Notice, notice that. The readiness to share the gospel with the other believers, so the readiness to teach here this gospel message, it actually stems from those believers first becoming very dear to you. And that dearness stems not first from what you may hold in common in this life, it's what you hold in common in Christ, what you both share in, in Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that it's impossible to teach anything without affection for the other people you're teaching. We know that's not the case because we see examples of it in the New Testament itself. I'm just saying that your teaching won't be complete. Won't be complete. It won't care too much about where the other person is coming from when you're teaching. It won't labor to get in the other person's shoes. It won't find new ways to get across what you're trying to get across if they're saying they don't understand you. And it ultimately won't reflect Christ. How does Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 13? If I have prophetic powers, and this is up against the tongues that you can't understand, if I have prophetic powers, so this is clear articulation of the truth. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have not love, it says, I am nothing. I am nothing. Teaching to make disciples of Jesus begins with affection for Jesus and for one another. In fact, discipling one another will flow quite naturally from your love for each other. In the same way that a parent's love drives them to teach and invest in their child. So one place we might seriously consider as a church is whether we share this affection for one another. Do you share this affection for those in your care group? If not, or even if just a little bit, let's pray that God would change our hearts toward each other. You know, God is the one that gives such affection. And in 2 Corinthians 8.16, it says that God put it into the heart of Titus earnest care for the church. Where does earnest care come from? It comes from God putting it into the heart of Titus and all of us. So let's ask God to work in this way and then make efforts to deal with whatever may be hindering it from, from increasing. Secondly, teaching will include instruction in the gospel of the kingdom and its demands. Teaching will include instruction in the gospel of the kingdom and its commands. Let me talk about the demands first. Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So there's no way for us to say, Lord, Lord, and not do what Jesus says. Jesus demands our lives because he has authority in heaven and on earth. If he's our king, we must follow his commands. So commands like repent, follow me, go and reconcile with your brother, love your enemies, pray then like this, Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Or, or even commands like this. Rejoice when others revile you. 
Ask, and it will be given to you. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. That's a command. Take heart, daughter. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Go and make disciples. These these are various commands. All of them come from the, the Gospel of Matthew. And we must learn to obey them as citizens of Christ's kingdom. But... But one thing we must remember in our teaching is that all these various demands are linked with the gospel of the kingdom. When we look at Jesus' own teaching ministry, he wasn't merely going around telling everybody what they ought to be doing and weren't able to do on their own. He was also giving them the very message that freed people and compelled people to do what they ought to be doing. Well, this message was the gospel of the kingdom that he preached and taught so often. What is the gospel of the kingdom? Well, sometimes the gospel refers more narrowly to the announcement that God has secured the forgiveness of sins through Jesus' substitutionary death. So we're focusing, so sort of zeroing, uh, zeroing in on, 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 the, on, the, on, the, on the cross and resurrection and what God's achieved there. But at other times, the gospel refers more broadly. It sort of takes the lens and, uh, off the cross and resurrection and zooms out. It, 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 the gospel refers more broadly to the grand sweep of God's saving purposes that find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The same gospel with different levels of focus. But to boil it down, God has sent us a message in Holy Scripture about His kingdom breaking in on the present world in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's really bad news for people like us because we rebelled against God's kingdom and at one point joined enemy ranks. And since God is holy and all-powerful, He will destroy us if we remain His enemies. But the good news is, the happy announcement for all rebels like us is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, emptied Himself and came into the world as a servant... He died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice. God's wrath fell on him in our place. And then Jesus rose from the dead as the beginnings of a whole new world that he will one day bring in its fullness. Everybody who trusts in Jesus will experience the forgiveness of their sins, enter the kingdom of God, and receive the promised Holy Spirit who then enables them to become more and more like Christ until he comes again. That is the gospel, the good news. This message, when it is taught and explained, it changes people from the inside so that they want to obey Jesus. It makes them obedient from the heart, as Romans 6 says. The gospel message so thrills people with Jesus, they can't help but obey Him because Jesus Christ Himself is shining so beautifully and wonderfully in the gospel. Kind of like Mike was sharing at the beginning, the the freedom from our sins. So we've got the gospel, 
of the kingdom and its demands. Now let me give you a few examples of how Jesus and the apostles instruct disciples with the gospel of the kingdom and its demands. Because if you read carefully, they're always linked together. First one can be right here in Matthew 28. What is the gospel of the kingdom according to Matthew 28? Well, Christ was crucified, chapters 26 and 27, but now he is alive with universal authority. And he is risen even for our benefit. He says, I will be with you until the end of the age. Jesus has the power and authority to achieve all God's purposes. And if he is unstoppable, then he will fulfill all the promises for God's kingdom. That's the gospel according to Matthew 28. But how should that then affect us? What demand does it place on our life? Well, we must go and make disciples of all nations. We should stop living for our own kingdoms and humbly submit to Christ's rule and his kingdom. We should prioritize our life for mission and then trust in his ongoing provision and enjoyment uh, with his constant presence with us along the way in the mission. You see how this works? The gospel of the kingdom has demands, but they're always together. Another example, let's, let's do Mark 10, if you want to go there with me. Mark 10, you've got uh, verse 35 to 45. You know, the disciples are sitting here, they're asking Jesus, basically, who deserves the best seat in heaven? And then they begin arguing about it with each other. One disciple is trying to one-up the other. And how does Jesus address it? He basically says, no, you ain't acting like that. And then preaches the gospel to them. But, but hear it starting in verse 42, because we're going to see both the demand and the gospel again. Verse 42 says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. He's basically telling you, you're, you're acting just like the world with this kind of prideful talk. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see what he's doing? As he's teaching, What's the gospel message here? Well, the gospel message is the Son of Man came as a man to serve and then to give his life on the cross. And when he gave his life on the cross, it was a ransom for them, a ransom from their selfish living. Like Mike was talking about earlier. I'm gonna, it's great, Mike, the way he introduced this because the, he's talking about this ransom out of slavery to this selfish living and into this liberating kingdom where, where we lay down our lives for others. And so how does that affect us? Well, we become slaves of all. We turn away from this kind of prideful talk and we, we serve others 
first. A third example, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So we're moving on to the apostles here who are following Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6. You've got these believers in the church who are suing each other. They're taking each other to court over some trivial matters. And Paul comes in, just like Jesus would, and he instructs them in the gospel of the kingdom and shows how it ought to affect these little disputes. But this time, as Paul preaches the gospel, he actually points them to the future. I mean, that's part of the gospel message. Christ is coming again. So he's pointing them to the future, and he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge Angels, You see, what is Paul doing here? He's pointing them to what the gospel says about their future. And it's fairly incredible if you've been reading 1 Corinthians up to this point because what he's saying is that your righteousness in Christ is so complete it will equip you and fit you to judge the world In the kingdom, including heavenly beings like angels. Christ is our righteousness, it says in chapter 1. And this righteousness makes you fit for the future kingdom such that you can judge the world and angels. And so he's coming to them and saying, how much more these petty disputes you're having with each other? And so the demand implied here is is very clear. Get out of the courts and start looking to Christ's righteousness for help and for forbearance with one another. Uh, One more example. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Paul is exhorting the churches to uh, support the poor back in Jerusalem. He's going around and gathering up his collections Um, But he doesn't do this by just coming into the churches and saying, hey, give me your money so I can give it to them. No, he, he still makes the demand for this sacrificial giving, but he points them to the gospel while he does it. So 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Again, we see a connection being made between the gospel of the kingdom, Christ emptied himself for your sake, and then the demands that it has on our lives. We, we give generously. God was infinitely generous when, when he sent his own son to die for our sins, therefore Let's give to reflect his generosity. So these are just examples of of hundreds and hundreds more. But the point is this. When we're instructing people to obey Jesus, we must be careful to also point them to the power of the cross. We must be careful to show people that what God commands 
He also gives us the grace to do through Jesus. So, making disciples of Jesus will include this instruction in the gospel of the kingdom. We'll make sure that each other know the good news of Jesus in all of its richness. And then let's also instruct each other in whatever demands it may place on us. There's a flip side to this instruction, though, and that makes for a third element in teaching disciples. Admonition in the gospel of the kingdom and its demands. Admonition in the gospel of the kingdom. This is like the other side of the teaching coin. In fact, many places in the New Testament we see teaching paired with uh, some kind uh, of admonition. Uh, One example we keep turning to is Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another. Another place you find it is the elders and their responsibility to teaching the church. They are to teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. So you see these two things coming together again there. But admonition includes things like rebuke, correction, reproof, warning. If we had before us a path labeled the gospel of the kingdom... Admonition is what kicks in when you stray off the path, say, into something like self-righteousness or, or when you stray off the path, and path into loose living. Admonition kicks in to, to get you on the path. It exposes why all the other roads are destructive and, and then it points you once again to the path of, of life. It's kind of like in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. To keep your eyes on the wicked gate, Right? Evangelist comes and keep them there. Admonition is an activity in making disciples that's less comfortable to give and even more difficult to receive. But the New Testament is replete with passages that make it necessary for our growth. Uh, Paul exhorts Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. And we want to say, yes, teaching. But look at this. For reproof also. For correction. For training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if we're going to be complete and equipped, Redeemer, then let's not stray from this thing called admonishment. Paul didn't stray from admonishment, even when it meant calling out Peter when he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles out of fear of the Jews. Paul wasn't sitting there contemplating like, oh boy, this isn't going to go over very well. If I bring this up, people are going to leave the churches in Galatia, which is it's going to be terrible. It's going to be a downer for the Jews. Gentiles might even get a bit prideful. I don't know about that. No. Out of love for Christ and out of love for Peter and out of love for the church, he says he rebuked Peter to his face because he was, the text says, out of step with the gospel. And that's all that mattered. We live out of step with the gospel. We destroy souls. So it's got to be dealt with.
that also means that we need to be prepared to receive it. Okay? To receive it when it happens to us. We'll all need it. And again, that's a, an opportunity for us to rest in our justification in Christ. Right? If Christ has justified us, then even this rebuke, even this criticism, even this correction that's coming can only be for my good and His glory. Now, I have to stop here for a minute with a little parenthesis. Because as I was reading through the New Testament this week, thinking through these, these things, I was struck by how many times something is said about the manner in which we teach one another. Uh, that is to say, the gospel doesn't just make up the content of what we give to each other. It also instructs us in how we teach it. It instructs us in the manner we we teach. So listen to some of these characteristics that should clothe our teaching, clothe our, our uh, instruction and our admonition. Uh, and this is also why I brought up the point about affection for Christ and for His people at the beginning, because you don't have affection for one another. These things are going to uh, likely not clothe what you're saying to each other. But but when we do, these things will. I mean, so first of all, a desire to listen. James 1.19. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Uh, Francis Schaeffer used to say that, uh, say, if I have only an hour with someone, I will spend the first 55 minutes uh, asking questions, and finding out what is troubling their heart and mind. And then in the last five minutes, I will share something of the truth. How much our tongues need to be ruled by this careful listening. Uh, wisdom is another characteristic clothing our teaching. Colossians 3.16, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. So this, the, both the teaching and the admonishment are, are clothed with this Wisdom, which is, we know, found in Christ, Colossians tells us. Uh, Jonathan Watson preached on this uh, uh, passage a, few year, a couple years ago, and I appreciated his words. He said, simply put, this, this phrase, with all wisdom, means that we teach and admonish in appropriate ways to the situation and to the individual. We don't merely throw words at people. We don't shoot gospel bullets at each other. We have not done our duty to the gospel if we merely drop a cliche on our brother or sister in their weakness. Or how about gentleness and humility? We see these characteristics clothing uh, our correction of one another in Galatians 6.1. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Then here's the humility part. Keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So when we go to folks, we recognize our own vulnerabilities to the very sins we're confronting in others. We're just as vulnerable as they are. And this is, it shapes the way we speak. We confront them. 
Uh, love is an er- another characteristic. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth to one another in love. So you're making every effort to serve their eternal well-good, uh, their eternal well-being in God through your words. Or Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So our teaching should be gracious. We, we should take great pains to find words that fit the occasion. I can think of many times my wife is sharing some of her struggles throughout the day. I launch one of those gospel bullets like Jonathan was saying, and as it leaves the mouth, you're going, stupid, 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 you know, trying to not write. It's time to sit and listen and hold and cry and pray, think, and then speak. Words that are fitting for the occasion. Uh, even, our, uh, even our age differences play a role in shaping our rebuke. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers... Younger women as sisters in all purity. So even our age differences affect the way we communicate with one another. I want to be like this with my teaching. Don't you? I mean, because ultimately it's beautiful because Christ is beautiful. It's hard to do. It's inconvenient. Love is regularly inconvenient. But it's beautiful because it reflects the character of Christ. So, those are some characteristics that should clothe our instruction and admonition in the gospel and in its demands. All right, let's close that little parenthesis and uh, get back to our various elements in teaching and looking at one more, namely imitation of Christ. So, we've got affection, instruction, admonition, and now we're looking at imitation. And this is where... Uh, this is an area our church needs some growth. And that's not necessarily because of some kind of deliberate avoidance of it or because you hate the thought of it or something, but because many of us are introverted and learn through reading. And on top of that, historically we've been part of a church model that leans toward Lots and lots and lots of one-directional teaching and not so many things that are more interactive. It's one reason we have care groups, though. But still, a lot of our corporate stuff is one-directional. And even deeper than that, sometimes our self-acclaimed trust in the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit overlooks the fact that the Spirit uses means, and one of those means is imitation. So if we stay here, Redeemer, it's not going to be healthy in the long run. First of all, because it overlooks those who learn better, not through reading, but through someone modeling it for them. But second of all, God has ordained that disciples learn to obey Jesus by imitating Christ in one another. It's not that we imitate everything in each other. We imitate Christ in each other. So we see this imitation theme come up in, in, in lots of places, but we see it, we see it in relation to uh, Paul's cross-centered life in, in, 
in the Corinthian church, uh, Paul goes on about how he loses everything for Christ's sake and, and, and that losing everything for Christ's sake is worth more than worldly gain. And it's something he wants the church itself to imitate. And so what does he do? He sends Timothy to them to show them his ways in Christ. It's like, Timothy, you go and you live with them for a while. You show them what this cross-centered life looks like. Let them see you. Let them see what I teach. Give them a model. We see this imitation in relation to following in the footsteps of Christ's sufferings. In 1 Peter 2, we see it in relation to to pressing on toward the goal of the upward prize in Philippians 3, in relation to becoming all things to all men in 1 Corinthians 11.1. Timothy is to set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And then it even becomes something that not just these various leaders are doing, but actually the whole church, these Entire churches are imitating other churches. Uh, So the church in Thessalonica, for example, uh, Paul comes in, he imitates Christ, and then the believers in Thessalonica start imitating Paul as Paul imitates Christ, and then the churches in Macedonia and Achaia start imitating the church in Thessalonica in the same way. This is how it's supposed to work. It even gets down to the mundane, everyday things. Uh, Paul comes in, you know, and, and he, would, uh, he was intentionally self-supporting in his gospel ministry. So he's building tents next to folks in Thessalonica, and, and, and he expects folks to imitate the way he works with his hands and isn't lazy at work. Now, this assumes something, doesn't it? It assumes that we're actually around each other enough to imitate Christ in each other. Discipleship has to be more than one directional teaching on Sunday morning. Imitation can only come with interaction, watching, inviting each other into into each other's lives. Maybe a couple of examples. Older men with children or who've had children and are now empty nesters. What would it take for you to show some of our younger families what family worship looks like for your household? We have people who are married that did not grow up with Christian parents. They're asking how to lead their family in devotion. What would it look like to just eat together and then model it for them? Invite them to participate. Let them see it. Give them some ideas. Let them see that family worship often looks a whole lot different than the front cover of a lot of the books on family worship. Dad's sitting there, Bible open, on the cover. All the kids are sitting around with halos on their heads, listening without distraction. And you read the book, and you go home and you imitate this book, and you're like hitting your head the first night. Forget this. That ain't what it looks like. We read two sentences, and we're, where's Abby? So let them see. Let them see how you deal with those moments. Or some of you are really gifted in mercy toward others. You know, you're gifted with mercy so that the rest of us don't overlook mercy. 
but actually imitate the mercy of Christ that's in you. Or maybe you're some, some of you are really gifted with evangelism. What, what, what would it take just to invite one person along and show them how to meet strangers, talk with them about how to talk with them about Jesus? Or we have some deacons with various ministries in the church that, that help, or, or that also help us with, with visitation and other things. Deacons, what might it look like to just make it a point in your mind, I'm going to rarely do my work alone? I'm going to bring somebody in. I'm going to call them up. I'm going to see if they're available. I'm going to serve with somebody. You're appointed to your ministry because we want others to imitate your service to the saints. So these are just a few examples that play out in a hundred ways in our lives. So these four things... Affection, instruction, admonishment, and imitation. Some elements in our teaching one another to obey all that Jesus commanded us. So take these home and, and uh, see how you might implement them, implement them in, in, in some of the relationships I was talking to you about last week. Now, and some of you will go home and you will try to implement this tonight. And you're going to pull out the calendar and you're going to get all giddy about schedules and, and map out when you're going to teach and who you're going to teach and what you're going to teach and how long you're going to teach it. And I just want to say that if you're like me in that, be careful not to compartmentalize discipleship. Making disciples is not an event. Okay, we, we have something here called Discipleship Hour on Sunday mornings. I guess it's cooler than Sunday school. But there's no such thing really as a discipleship hour. Okay? It's our life to follow Jesus in these things. Class is always in session. It's fine if there are more formal times of instruction, but don't miss the spontaneous opportunities to teach that the Lord gives you throughout the day, throughout the week. On the other hand, some of you are already thinking, what in the world could I possibly teach anybody about following Jesus? I'm not well-educated. I come from a rough background. Or as Chris Cronenworth likes to remind me, he's just an old clock puncher. Well, let me encourage you with a word from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. It says, Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This levels the playing field. It means God chose none of us based on what we had or what we lacked. 
whatever we have, all of us, it's all of grace. And your life has a unique place in the kingdom. It's to magnify God's power. So whatever you have in Christ, we see that in the rest of our passage in 1 Corinthians 1, whatever you have in Christ, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, wisdom from God, share it with us. Share it. Teach us. I need you. We need you. If we are to become more and more like Christ, we all need each other. To make disciples, you need not know everything. You only need to know Jesus. And everything that is in Him is yours. So we are going to move to the uh, Lord's Supper now and celebrate that together. And one of the things we do on occasion is read our church covenant uh, together. And you will notice that uh, our church covenant has lots of little uh, statements in it regarding how we disciple one another, regarding some of the things we covered today. So, so think of it as you let this covenant remind you of our commitment to one another as a, as a body before we eat the bread and drink the cup.